How we doing, Rocky Peak? Feeling pretty good? How was Thanksgiving? You still feeling it? Me too. I ordered a Fitbit. I'm trying to work it off. So there we go. Great to be here. Uh, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors and uh, just want to welcome you to Rocky Peak. Give you one quick announcement before we jump into our teaching, which is if you... Um, are not receiving any mail from Rocky Peak and you'd love to stay informed on what's happening, inside your program there's something called a Connect card. If you fill that out, we'll stay in contact with you. Um, Mike is going to be sending a ministry update letter in a week or two. So um, if you fill that out, you'll be included on that mailing. So I just want to throw that out there to you. Let me pray and then we'll jump in. Lord, today it's been great to come together with this group of people and proclaim your name. And We worship you. We invite your spirit. We ask that you would lead this service. And so... Uh, Direct my words, direct our hearts as we look in the scriptures, and Jesus, would you uh, encounter us all in a very profound way? We ask in your name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to start with a uh, quick story. This was, uh, happened to a friend of mine. He was attending CSUN. Anybody go to CSUN in here? All right, we got a few CSUN people in here. Uh, he was going to CSUN, and he was in a class, and in this class, he had to write a position paper. And basically, everybody's assignment, you write on something, and then you're going to defend it in front of the class. And so he chose to write on the topic of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the professor sees this and tells him, like, listen, if you're going to write on this, you'll fail. You'll have to write on something that's true. So what did he do? He wrote the paper. <laughs> um, it's really great to see people who have conviction um, and have a sense of understanding what they're talking about and be able to defend that. You're going to see that today. We're going to be jumping into a topic um, today that's part of a series. If you're new, I want to catch you up to speed on the series. And one way you could follow along is inside your program. There's an outline. You could use that to follow along. But the series is called Sent, Life on Mission. And it's a great series. It touches on some of the greatest themes. There's certain things that all of us, you, me, we all have in common. We want to live our life. Um, for something that's meaningful. We'd love to have something that's worth dying for, to understand who we are, what our mission in life is. And so this book that we're studying touches these deep themes, and it's written on the book of Acts. And if you, just for a quick background on the book of Acts, it was written by a really famous doctor. Um, his name was Luke, very educated, really well-researched, and it really is a two-volume set that he wrote. It's the book of Luke, which is a gospel, as well as the book of Acts. So it's Luke and Acts. The first book really chronicles the whole life of Jesus, and so he lays that out. Luke is respected by secular historians as well for his accuracy and how he writes. But he chronicles the life of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. And then you get to the book of Acts. And this is another way of saying it. It's the Acts of the Apostles. So what happened when this early movement of Jesus started, and he chronicles this, and it's about a 30-year window, and you see the message of Jesus where it goes out, starts with a small group of people, then it begins expanding throughout Jerusalem, and then spreads all the way into Rome, and he covers about a 30-year history in this book of Acts. Fascinating read. It's powerful. In fact, if where we've been studying so far, God is still moving in really obvious, powerful, miraculous ways. And one of the things that is happening, miraculous healings are taking place. In fact, where we're getting at, a healing just occurred. There was a man, he was crippled from birth. And uh, Peter and John, they pray for him. Jesus, by the power of Jesus Christ, this man begins to walk. Well, that gets a lot of attention. Now huge crowds are gathering. So Peter and John, 
have crowds that are gathering, and what they begin to do is to teach about who Jesus is. He's the one that was crucified. He rose from the dead. Now get this. This is about five weeks from when this just happened. He just rose from the dead. He's appeared to us. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophets. This is the one we've been waiting for, all hoping for. He's speaking to a mostly Jewish audience. He's saying, this is the one we're waiting for. It's Jesus. He's the one. And he begins to lay out this big view of salvation that was started from many generations ago. And Jesus is the fulfillment. Then he encouraged them, repent, turn away from your sin, turn to Jesus. He's the way. Well, as they're preaching this, they get interrupted. So picture is Peter and John are out there proclaiming this. Um, in comes a, an official group of people uh, from the Sanhedrin. You get the captain of the temple guard. He's basically number two in command. His job is to keep order. In fact, he has great authority. He has powers to arrest. And so he comes on scene, interrupts this preaching, and they arrest him. They take him in, and now they have got to stand and defend their message. So that's what we're going to be jumping into today. What I want you to catch before we start reading this, just keep this in your mind. I want you to notice the conviction and boldness they have when they're called to defend what they believe. Just catch that. It's amazing. In fact, my hope today as we look at this passage, we would all be able to step away and we would have deeper conviction ourselves and we'd be able to be able to defend what we believe with greater clarity. I think we'll get that today. So let's take um, a look at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Acts 4, 1 to 12. Let's start with verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed. That's the Bible's way of saying they're really ticked off. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So one of the things they're teaching to all the people is just like Jesus rose from the dead, everybody will rise from the dead. There'll be an accounting. But believers will spend eternity with the Lord um, in a new upgraded body. They're literally teaching resurrection from the dead. Well, these religious leaders hated this. They were hating this message, and there's two reasons they hated it. One reason especially for these, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a sect of religious leaders that totally reject the supernatural. That can't happen. Miracles can't happen. This lame guy standing before you, even though they have evidence right in front of them, they'll re, they reject it. They hate it. Angels, demon, no way. Don't believe that. Life after death, don't believe that. So basically, it's almost like a modern-day secularist um, perspective where there's no no supernatural possibility in their thinking, although they practice religious things. So that's who's against it. So one, they hate the teaching because they reject it, but they also hate it for a second reason, and it's a political reason. They have tremendous authority in Jerusalem. They have tremendous authority amongst the Jews. The Romans have allowed them to have this great authority, and they don't want to rock the boat. But when you get all these people coming in, and now you have Peter and John preaching about a Messiah it, with all these messianic overtones. And in the minds of the Sadducees and most people at the time is that the Messiah was going to come and have this big political overthrow. So it's like this uprising in the cities happening and they're getting ready for a war to break out. And they don't want to have issues with Rome. They want to protect their standing 
in the community. So they didn't like it. One, they hate the message. Secondly, they want to protect their standing. They don't want it. They're going to stomp this out. So they're going to nip it in the bud. So let's go on. Verse 3. They seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. So they had to wait for trial the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now get this. This is just men. doesn't include women and children. So you're looking at over 10,000 people believing now. Droves of people coming to Christ. Verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law, they met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. It's a big deal. He's the most powerful political figure among the Jews at the time. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? So what you have, you have all the bigwigs gathered. This is the same group of people tried Jesus, put him to death. So they have a tremendous amount of authority. And so... The greatest earthly authority is challenging them. And what they challenge them on is, by what authority do you say this? By what authority are you healing? What authority? Now, what they thought would happen is that would be pretty intimidating to Peter and John. And it would be for most people. You're standing in this court. you got to defend this. And instead, what Peter hears, by what authority? Awesome. What a great open door. That's a great setup question. I'm going to tell them all about the authority of Jesus. So, What he does is he's going to now preach a mini-sermon to the Sanhedrin, to these religious leaders who are trying them. So he's loving this moment. So here he goes. He says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he says to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. That's bold, right? Are you catching that? Five weeks ago, you put him to death. You missed it. He was the promised Messiah. You missed it. You put him to death. And it's under his authority, the one who rose from the dead. He has authority over death. It's by his authority that we can heal. He has authority over Everything. So he healed. It's his authority. Now the crux of the sermon that they're preaching, if you, like in the original language, there's a, there's a word sozo, and it's referencing, it says this man was healed. It's that word sozo. So it's referencing physical healing. The word is also used, you'll see it a little later on in verse 12, it's the same word that references salvation. It's a name that brings wholeness. Even beyond physical, it brings ultimate salvation. So there's a whole picture that just like Jesus has authority to heal physically, he has authority to grant salvation and forgiveness of sins. He is the ultimate Messiah. That's what he's teaching him. And so he's going to go on, and now he's going to quote a psalm, which was a prediction that the leaders would reject the Messiah. And so he's basically accusing them of their rejection. And he quotes Psalm 118 right here. Verse 11 says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. So he points to them. It's the guilt of the Sanhedrin. They're the builders. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation of the church. He's everything. The reason all these followers are there is because Jesus is our foundation. 
He's the head of the church. He's the foundation we stand on. He's the promised Messiah. And he's saying, you guys missed it. In verse 12, he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind, which we must be saved. So in other words, don't look for another Messiah. He's not coming. He already came. You missed it. But you still have an opportunity. It's Jesus. So he is proclaiming, proclaiming salvation to the ones who accused Jesus in the first place. Isn't that powerful? We're going to pause. That's as far as we're going to go in chapter 4 today. But a couple things to catch. One is just the confidence is off the charts of these men. Off the charts. Um, I don't know if you've ever felt intimidated if somebody's ever asked you to defend. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe that? It's crazy. It's just a crutch anyways. It's, it's your spiritual hope, you know, you've got. Why would you even believe that? A lot of people have a hard time with that. When I was um, attending CSUN, I went there for a semester, um, undergrad. I was attending, and the first class that I had taken, it was a world religions class. And uh, if you'd subtitle that class, it's like world religions and subpoint, why Christianity is so ridiculous. That was really the main theme of the class. Um, well, I remember hearing all these challenges, accusations to the faith, and I remember sitting there, and I was so frustrated. And I was more frustrated. I was irritated with this professor, but I was more irritated with myself that I was not able to articulate what I knew to be true. But it caused me to go deep and start looking. I love that. I, what a great experience that was for me. Began to search it out. I want to be able to give an answer if somebody asks me a question about that. Um, and the idea is we need to be ready. You know, people do want to know this. People will ask. And we want to be able to give a reason for it. There's a scripture that even says it. Give a reason for the hope that's in you. People want to ask. Five days ago, I was on a local college campus talking to students. And um, two students um, I was talking to that night, um, they had real questions. Like, just help me understand. Like, but in this little question, it's like, what evidence ev is there even for any of this? And what was really fun, um, one of them was the president of the LGBTQ club. And... All she was used to was people yelling and shouting at her. She's never had a real conversation with someone who believed in Jesus. Well, it was such an awesome conversation. We talked for 45 minutes. Um, and it was, I remember her saying, she goes, I just have never have ever heard anybody explain that. She was so appreciative of it. Great conversation. But people want to know. And I, my hope today is that we'll feel more equipped to respond, at least to a couple aspects of our faith, after today. So I want you to be more confident today in proclaiming and defending the message. So there's two big essentials. If, you're in an, if you have your outline, you can follow along. It says this, the way, two realities. And there's two big realities about our message that we got to understand if we're going to proclaim it and defend it. First is this, the way of salvation is both inclusive and it's exclusive. Inclusive and exclusive. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a second. So we have to first understand what is this message that Jesus is proclaiming and that the apostles are now proclaiming. First of all, it's a really wide-armed message. It's very inclusive. In a sense, it means this. It is salvation given to all mankind. It's open to anybody, any tribe, any nation, any generation, young, old. The heart of God is that all would come to know him. That's the heart of God. He wants that. He wants people to come to know him. There's a great scripture in 1 Timothy 2.4 where 
which underscores this, the very passion and desire of God, and it says this. God, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So don't doubt the heart of God. What does he want? His heart is that all would come. That's why he would go to the greatest extent to come and die and rise. He says he came for the guilty, the broken, the hurting, because his passion is people. He loves us. So that's what it is. Um, and it's coming to a knowledge of the truth. So there's an aspect, there's a true aspect of who Messiah is. And basically, as they've been laying out in this message, Jesus is, has been foretold. So as they preach, they're expanding this view of salvation. Salvation began a long ago of a promise of a Messiah coming. And then this Messiah would fulfill these things, and faith in him would be it. And he would be coming up in a lineage of David, which is he's coming up through the nation of Israel. So the God of Israel is the God of all. But he's got wide open arms. It's inclusive. And it's exclusive in this sense. There's no other name by which you can be saved. All are welcome, but it's through Jesus. Well, that seems, how in the world can you say it so boldly, confidently? How do they say that so confidently? Because only Jesus fulfilled everything that the prophets had told about. Only he fulfilled it. Only he is the one who lived a life of perfection and could lay his life down, which is the only thing that could satisfy the justice of God and make a way. Only him. So there's only one way. That's why he would say things like, no one comes to the Father except through me. Because he made the way. Don't miss it. It's inclusive for all. It's exclusive because it's through Jesus. This was a very important thing. Is he, like, if you read back and if you heard Mike's message last week, Mike went through the story of Israel. And part of the reason is because he's linking this. And when they were preaching, they linked this to the ancient times. All the way back. That was very important for the Jewish audience because they knew about Messiah coming. They expected it. It was really important for the Greeks. The Greeks were the ones that worshipped Apollo and Zeus and everybody else. They were polytheistic. They had all these different gods, and they were really skeptical of any new religion that would pop up. So a way they overcame that skepticism is they linked it all the way to the beginning, saying this isn't some new thing. This has been foretold from generations ago. It's powerful, and it was really effective with the audience. Now, it's really essential to know this aspect of the message. Because we've got to be clear on it. Jesus was clear on it. Apostles are clear on it. Scripture is clear on it. That's why it really left no room to say, well, as long as I live a good enough life, that'll be good enough. Or, hey, Jesus knows, or God knows my heart. I'm sure I'll be fine. Scripture leaves no wiggle room for that. Don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself in that. Or, you know, he, you know it's just, there's, there's probably a lot of different things I could pursue, it, and I'll figure that out after I die. There's no chance after that. Just understand, it's inclusive. It's for you, but it's through Jesus. That's his declaration, the declaration of the apostles. Second big aspect to get is that's part of the message. Now, the second big um, essential to understand is this. The way of salvation is based on historical facts. Way of salvation is based on historical facts. Now, let me tell you why this is a big deal. It is really easy to miss the obvious here. We are talking about very real events that happened in real time and place, the faith of Jesus, believing in Jesus, is deeply rooted in history. 
Get on an airplane. Go fly over to Jerusalem. Fly over to Greece. You're going to see these places they're talking about. You can go see the ancient ruins. Do you understand that when the Smithsonian Institute wants to do an archaeological dig, do you know what their number one source is? The Bible. Because when it writes on history, it is accurate. It's powerful. It's, a, it's an amazing source. The big thing you have to understand is the easiest faith to attack and prove false would be the Christian faith because it makes so many historical truth claims. So you want to attack it? Go for it. Because it makes so many claims, it should be incredibly easy to refute because it puts it all out there. Saying about real time, real events, real places. Now, I want to illustrate something about the origin of the faith and how this new sect called the Way started in Jerusalem and which led to millions coming to Christ, how this all started, and we'll compare it to how other faiths got started. Take a look at this slide. All right, how do you like those drawings? Amazing. Amazing artwork. Okay, but real simple. How Christianity started. The first is this. After a public ministry, Christ was killed publicly. What key word are you hearing? This is public. Very public. Christ rose from a public tomb publicly. Okay, catch this. This tomb was known about. Everybody knew about the tomb. The Jews knew about it. The last thing they wanted was some resurrected, quote, Messiah walking around. They didn't want anybody to touch that body. The Romans knew all about it, so they literally sent the Roman guard to protect that tomb so nobody touched it. They literally put the seal of Rome on it. If you break the seal of Rome, you know what the penalty is? Crucifixion upside down. Okay, any takers want to break that seal? Yeah, I'll pass. Um, it's a big deal. Nobody wanted that tomb touched with. But everybody in, in history acknowledges that the soldier, he ran, literally runs from the tomb. The seal's broken and the grave's empty. But he rose publicly. Christ publicly showed himself to the public. Over 500 people saw him walking around in the flesh. The public told everybody what they saw. You catch that? If you were an eyewitness to this, you could not keep your mouth shut. You'd be telling, you believe this? This is the same crowd that chanted, crucify him, crucify him. Now they're coming to him in droves because they saw it. It's based in history, happened in Jerusalem. A very real event, very public events, secular, and our scriptures write about it. Everybody acknowledges it. Take a quick look at how other faiths have started. Now, don't even take my word for this. Go have fun. Search this stuff out. But you can get this. It starts with a private dream about God. Another way it often starts is there's a private angelic encounter about God or a private idea about God. For example, um, Islam, Muhammad, has a private encounter. Um, Mormonism, Joseph Smith has a private angelic encounter, then goes and tells everybody about it. And then that person will tell everybody what he saw. So there's nothing real public out there. It's some private thing that happened, and people are going to tell about it. Other faith systems don't even make historical claims, truth claims. Whether you take Hinduism or Buddhism, it's just going to put something out there. You can't really pin anything down. You either accept it or reject it. But Christianity, the Christian faith, the followers of the way, is a radically different thing because it makes historical claims that can be challenged, tested, 
and examined. It's very powerful. So today, we're going to examine a couple lines of evidence. And to set it up, I'll tell you a story. I went through uh, the police academy when I was in college and um, began working. I was working West Valley Division. And uh, we were sitting about 11 o'clock at night. We were just south of Ventura Boulevard. And my partner and I were watching. We could see a good view of the boulevard. And we're on this little side street. And we just see this guy. He's walking around. And he's reading a newspaper at 11 o'clock at night on Ventura Boulevard. Uh, Reading the newspaper. Reads for a little bit, closes it, kind of pauses, walks along, opens it up, starts reading another article. Closes it, moves along. We're like, what is he doing? What in the world is he doing? And so we're watching this guy, and he doesn't see us. And so he's doing, they're reading this newspaper, then we see his hand, he's doing something. Like, we can't tell what he's doing. And then we notice his pockets are bulging. And he's only reading the newspaper in front of parking meters. He's got a key. He is ripping off the parking meters, taking all the change. Like, he's ripping off the meters. He goes, he is ripping off. Let's go get him. And so, boom, pull out, turn the lights on. Well, here it goes. This guy sees this coming, and he is, he's, he's making us run for it. All you see is heels and elbows. But when you have got about 50 pounds of change, and you can't really, I mean, he's not going real fast. It, we were cracking. We were literally laughing. It was, so, it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. He's trying to run, you know, and he gets this wall. He hops this fence, and he jumps over it. So, anyway, we go in this backyard. And uh, just turn the flashlight. It was really funny. You don't even have to run. You just turn the flashlight on. And all you see is, all we do is follow this trail of coins. <laughs> and it leads right to a bush. And we just walk over. All right, buddy, come on out. <laughs> Hook him up and off we go. Uh, now, what I love about that is, you know, as a police officer, you can be pretty skeptical. Evidence should support reality, right? And there's something within all of us. Evidence usually should point to reality. And so what I'm going to take you on is just the trail of the evidence. We're going to follow the coins in two different paths. Here's the first path of evidence that we'll look at as far as how do we know this is historic based in history. The first one is this. this pu- the public events about Jesus were predicted years and years, generations in advance of when they happened. So we'll call this fulfilled prophecy. Public events predicted generations before they happened. That is a great trick, right? Another way of defining prophecy is history written in advance. Unlike any other book written, Scripture is outside of time. It is a supernatural origin because it's outside of time. When it writes about historical events that will happen, they've happened consistently. And it's not like calling the 800 psychic hotline or whatever and somebody is on the other end like, I feel like you've had a conflict with somebody with a P in their name in the past. Oh, yeah. You know, it's how general is that, right? Don't call those numbers, please, for a lot of reasons. Um, But when they predict things, they're absurd things. For example, Scripture predicted the fall of Babylon. You have to understand what a big deal that was. Babylon was called the city that's indestructible. It had a huge moat around it, a huge moat. And then it had walls that were 90 feet thick. And now picture this, 330 feet high. And if that's not enough, they said, let's build a second one. It was double-walled, just like that. The indestructible city. Two Old Testament prophets declared its destruction and that it would never be rebuilt. That seemed absurd. And it happens. Historical event, check it out. That's a pretty good trick when you can accurately predict 
the future of historical events. Well, what I, the line of evidence I just want you to be aware of is that there are messianic prophecies. There's indicators. There should be ways we can identify who this promised Messiah would be. Now, most people who talk about evidence um, and identifiers, they really say to get adequate confirmation, you need about six identifiers. Here's an example. There's a, uh, a guy by the name of Dr. Greenleaf, and during World War II, he sold atomic secrets to the Russians. And so he was betraying the nation, sells atomic secrets. He takes off to Mexico, flees the country, and his co-conspirators in Russia are going to help him out. And so they're going to send somebody to give him a new passport so he can get out of Mexico and whatever, be home free. So what they tell him, they're going to use these six indicators as a, as a way of helping him figure out who the person is helping him out. He, they say, okay, first thing, write a letter to the secretary um, of the Russian ambassador. So he's going to do it. They tell him how to sign the name. Then three days later, appear in this certain plaza, stand in front of this certain statue, Stand there, put your middle finger in, your, in a guidebook, and just stand there. When you are approached, this is what you're going to say. An amazing statue, isn't it? I'm from Oklahoma. What are the odds of anybody saying that, right? So they get there, and if, if, uh, if you say that, and the person hands you a passport, you'll know it's the secretary of the Russian ambassador. You can take that, and you'll be home free. Now, I just use that story to, to illustrate it would be absurd for the the odds of someone standing with their hand in a certain guidebook and saying those exact things. People say, if you got six identifiers, you're good to go, especially when his life is on the line. That was good enough. The reason I give you that is because for messianic identifiers, messianic prophecies, there's well over a hundred of them, a hundred of them. So we would identify who the Messiah would be, about over a hundred, about even his death, his coming death, crucifixion. So I'm going to go through all hundred of them. I'm totally joking. I'll give you one example, okay? We'll give one example here. This one is in the book of Micah. Micah was an Old Testament prophet, 7th century B.C. So Micah is going to write, and he is going to do something that's truly amazing. He will predict the birthplace of the coming Messiah. And it's not like Jerusalem, pretty common big place. It's this little place, little Bethlehem out, out here. So Micah 5.2, if you have a Bible... Turn there. You can look at it with your own eyes. It says this. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, although you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel. That's code word for saying Messiah. Ruler over Israel was the coming Messiah, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Those words in the Hebrew are the strongest words for the past. It is used of God the Father in Psalm 90, verse 2. It's a way of tipping the hat. It's saying that this Messiah is God. Now, what's amazing about this little tiny scripture, they say he is going to be a son of man, little co coming through the lineage of David from the clan of Judah. That's pretty good. So we know that this is the Messiah will come from here. Second thing we know is he's going to be in this humble town called Bethlehem. And then we also know he'll be ruler over Israel, coming Messiah, and that he is son of God. He is from the ancient of times. That's a great indicator. If 
if you could predict the birthplace of someone hundreds of years in advance, a famous person, that'd be pretty good. The question is, how do you explain that? How does one explain, or how does one even arrange where you're going to be born? How do, you, how do you arrange to be born in a city that your parents aren't even from? They didn't even live there. They had to get there. That's pretty good. There's other indicators for the Messiah. There's an indications about how he would die. How do you arrange your death? How do you arrange the means of your death? Crucifixion. How do you arrange to make sure that when you die by crucifixion, you're not dying alone? There's other criminals near you. How do you also arrange that when you die, the normal means of breaking your legs doesn't happen to you, but it happens to the ones around you? How do you arrange that? How do you arrange that when your executioners kill you, they're going to gamble for your clothes? How do you arrange that? I could go on. Over 100 indicators for Messiah. Anybody would acknowledge six is amazing? When you have over 100, it's overwhelming. This is why Jesus declared the potency of prophecy. In Luke 16, 31, he said, he said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Why would Jesus say that so overwhelmingly? Because the evidence is overwhelming. History written in advance. So one line of evidence, if you've never researched it, have a field day. Go research fulfilled prophecy. It's insane. Now, there's a second line of evidence that backs up the historicity of our faith. And this is one that the Peter and John were talking about in Acts 4. And this is, this is, you'll see the result of it in this, the impact of the resurrection. Okay, if this event really happened, it should have sent shockwaves around the world. Shockwaves. Because this was a very public thing. Understand what the claim is, that a, probably a two-and-a-half-ton stone would be moved. Um, they would get past the Roman guard. Um, he would appear to people, hundreds of people. He rose from the dead, appears to hundreds of people, and people follow him. That's a pretty amazing claim, and it happened in the very city he, he was tried and convicted in. That's a pretty amazing claim. If it happened, there should be big a big impact. And let me just underscore the importance for believers of this. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. Look at this scripture on screen. Paul says this, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If this real event did not happen, if it didn't happen, we should shut the doors of our church and you should not spend another minute reading the scriptures. If it didn't happen, it's meaningless. This would all be meaningless. So a lot rides on that, right? There's such strong evidence for the event of the resurrection. You know, there's one of the top minds on evidences. Uh, there's a guy who wrote the book, uh, basically, on how to use evidences in court. His name's Dr. Simon Greenleaf. He was a professor, the royal professor of law at Harvard, and he did a famous three-book series a treaty on the law of evidence. He's considered still one of the greatest authorities on the subject. And he applied the principles of weighing evidence to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And his conclusion, he says, according to the laws of legal, legal evidence, there's more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection than just about any other event in history. This is the guy who wrote the book on evidences, literally. I love what Dr. Thomas Arnold he was the chair, he was the chair of modern history at Oxford 
He's the one who wrote the History of Rome, big historical book. And he says this, I know of not one fact in, in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. That's from one of the leading historians. Understand, great minds have researched this. Even the Jews and the Greek historians agreed the tomb was empty. So let's follow some basic... If this happened, it should have sent shockwaves. So let's just follow the trail of coins. What are some of those things? I'm going to name them fairly quickly. The first one is this. One of the things you've got to be able to answer for is the disciples' transformation. The disciples' transformation. These are the original followers of Jesus, the original apostles. Now, you've got to remember them. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible, you've got to remember how these guys acted. They're kind of competing with each other. Oh, I'm going to sit on the right hand of Jesus. Oh, I, I might be greater in, in heaven. They're the ones that said on the very last night that Jesus um, was alive. They, he was the one, Jesus said, would you please pray with me? Stand with me. And what do they all do? They all fall asleep. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Awesome. I'm about to lay my life down. You fall asleep. They fall asleep. Jesus is preparing a final meal. And he is laying out the fact that he's about to go to his death. And in that he says, someone here is going to betray me. And they're like, no way. And all of them, to the person, I won't do it. I will never betray you. I would never walk away from you. I'll be the last one standing. I will be with you. Tick tock, hours later, they all betray him. They all fall away. They're gone. Nowhere to be found. Because when Jesus is being taken to task and trial, they know he's going to death. If they so much put their, their head on the radar, they could be the next one. They could be hanging right next to him. And when your life is on the line, you're going to think twice about what you're going to do. And they all hid. That's where you get the famous denials of Peter. Time and again, he, I don't even know him. No, I don't know him. At one point, he's swearing and cursing. No way, I don't know Jesus. Doing anything he can. And he was the most adamant defender saying, I wouldn't do it. How do you get these guys who can't even stand with him in the final hours? How do you explain a radical transformation? Because now days later, days later, weeks later, they are standing in the very city that Jesus was tried and crucified, publicly proclaiming salvation through Jesus, publicly proclaiming he rose from the dead, publicly declaring it. And let me just say this. What do you think they got for that? Well, prison, torture, death. Do you understand church history even reports they had to watch the death of their families, many of them? Get reports of them being crucified upside down. One thrown in hot boiling oil or water, burning. Survived it, but they were tortured for their belief. Can I just tell you something? I've seen a lot of people, the moment when they're under trial or when they're arrested, I'm telling you, people are really quick to roll over on people because they don't want to hang out for a lie. No way. How do you not get one of them saying, if they made this up, how do you not get one of them to turn around? It's one thing to give your own life, but to watch the life of your family? There's no way. You could not keep these guys quiet. They wouldn't stop talking about it, even at risk of death. And why is that? Acts 4.20 tells you why. It's in your outline. It says, as for us, we cannot help speaking 
about what we have seen and what we have heard. These are eyewitnesses who will not let go of what they know, that Jesus appeared to them. He is real and he's alive. Michael Green, former principal of St. John's College, Nottingham, he observed that belief in the resurrection was the belief that turned heartbroken followers of a crucified rabbi into the courageous witnesses and martyrs of the early church. This was the one belief that separated the followers of Jesus from the Jews and turned them into the community of the resurrection. You could imprison them, you could flog them, you could kill them, but you could not make them deny their conviction that on the third day he rose again. That's powerful. How else do you explain it? Well, they probably stole the body, right? Well, A, how do you get past the Roman? Good, good luck. Um, B, they don't even have enough conviction to stand with him in the moment. And then when your life is on the line, they would turn from it. That's why nobody really gives that theory. There's just not even a good theory. How, you can't pull it off. And these guys didn't have conviction to even pull it off, even if they wanted to pull it off. So you have the disciples' transformation. There's another line of evidence. I'll even just give you one more. There's another theory around, hey, Jesus didn't die all the way. He was only half dead, kind of. You know, so you have to picture his flesh hanging off his back. He got whipped amazingly, and it would rip flesh. He's beaten beyond recognition. Imagine a half-dead Messiah somehow, you know, that getting out of that tomb, like he's going to roll the tomb. Someone half-dead is rolling a big stone away. And then what are you going to do, crawl? You know, appear. A half-dead Messiah is not very inspirational, right? Um, so that's why the theories against it are so tough to back up. Okay, the, sec- the other big one is this, the rapid growth of the church. This is another big deal. The rapid growth of the church. Now understand, the Jewish people in Jerusalem, deep, deep convictions. They had very strict ways how they're supposed to worship and practice. Now, in walking away from that, they, I mean, they, they face eternal consequence for an act that great. God entrusted them with practicing things like animal sacrifice, perfect little lamb, because it pictures a perfect uh, Messiah who would be coming. All these things. They had to practice these things, worshiping on the Sabbath. And to walk away from that would be huge. Acts 4.4 says this, though. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Remember, we said add women and children. You got about 10,000 people. How do you pull that off in the very city he was crucified? It would be one thing if the disciples all ran to another city and tried to convince people of this amazing story. But they didn't do that. They went to the very people who put Jesus on the cross and preached to them. And then Jesus starts appearing. That's a pretty powerful thing. How do you explain that a rabbi named Jesus, basically from a lower class region called Nazareth, preached for about three years, gathered a following of lower and middle class people, had trouble with the authorities, and gets crucified, which they recognize as rejection by God, but then they say he rose from the dead and everybody follows it and believes it. That just seems absurd. It would be just like me saying, okay, here, I'll give you a modern day example. Okay, hey guys, I want you to believe this. Give me a name of a person. Mark, you said? Okay, great, Mark. There's a guy named Mark. And let's say Mark was born in 1985. In Reseda, California. And uh, so pretty local, right here to this. So in 19, he was born. Well, then he began preaching and teaching. He got a following. And um, on October 31st of this year, he was put to death by electrocution. Governor Brown signed off on that. 
And now he's walking around, um, and you guys just got to, you've got to believe this. Okay? Uh, any takers on that? Right? In our time, it, it, that would cause shockwaves around here. Everybody would be talking about it. It would be pretty hard to convince that. But this is what's happening in the early church. The very people, um, that's why secular historians cannot even begin to explain how do you have such rapid conversion of people. Because they're convinced. That's why CFD Mole, former Cambridge New Testament scholar, he basically says that this whole thing rips a great hole in history, a hole the size and shape of the resurrection. What does a secular historian propose to stop it up with? Give me a reason, is basically what he's saying. Give me any reason. Because there's none other than he rose. Third line of evidence, following the trail of coins, for the impact of the resurrection of Jesus is the conversion of skeptics. Conversion of skeptics. For some overwhelming reason, the greatest skeptics of Jesus, many of them converted. A couple quick examples. First, who's the hardest people to convince? No, not Pharisees, not atheists. Your family, right? Family. Why? Because they know you. Like, oh, please. I have, uh, I have a son. I have a young son. <laughs> Sometimes I joke with him, hey, you know your dad. I am a superhero. Oh, please, dad. That's about as far as I can get with that. I do not bound over tall buildings or anything else, and he knows it. I, you can't convince that. It's hard to convince people closest to you. Now, imagine if you had a brother... And around Thanksgiving dinner, you're just sitting there, and he says, hey, by the way, I just want you to know I am the way, I'm the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Right, right? How's that going to go over? How is that going to go over? His brother's like, I, I know this guy. I saw him. He was working like a minimum wage job in carpentry, and now he's saying he's Messiah. I don't, I don't buy it. And he didn't buy it. He, he mocked the whole idea of it. His name was James. He mocked the fact that Jesus could be this Messiah until Jesus rose and he saw him. What happened to James at that point? He is so overwhelmed and convinced. He becomes the leader of the church. Guess in which city? In Jerusalem. In front of all his friends and peers because you could not keep him quiet. He became one of the most convinced believers. He wrote the book of James in Scripture. There was another major skeptic. He was so angry at this movement of Jesus, hated it with a passion. He was a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. Um, and his one job and mission in life was to stomp out this new faith that's going around, this talk of Jesus. He was so angry. And so he was responsible for the death of so many believers, so many of them. But something radical happened to him, and history backs this up. He met the resurrected Jesus, and all I can tell you this is that all of a sudden, he goes from one day planning their death to the next day, you know, within day, he's proclaiming him. Why? Because he saw the resurrected Jesus. In 1 Timothy 1.13, it says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, that's him, but he met Jesus. His name was Paul, and from that point on, he becomes a follower of the way. His character is transformed, his message is transformed, and his mis mission is radically transformed. He turns his whole life around. What did he get for that? He's ostracized by his peers, and he has to pay the ultimate price for his belief, which is death. Besides torture and prison and you name everything in between. But you couldn't shut him up because he knew it. Even the greatest skeptics 
One last one. There was new worship practices that emerged right after the resurrection. History backs this up. How do you explain that? How do you explain that Jewish people believing in Jesus would walk away from all those generations of worship practice? They didn't do animal sacrifice anymore because that pointed towards the coming Messiah. He came and he died and he paid the price. We don't do that anymore. How do you explain that they did not worship on the Sabbath any longer? What would make them do something that radical? That for them, that's eternal damnation. What would make them do that? They began worshiping when? On Sunday. Why? Because he rose that day. That's why they did it. You can look back in history where that began. It's amazing. People have a hard time saying it. They began practicing other things. They began practicing communion. They began practicing baptism, which pictured you're, you're, you're dead, you get buried with Christ and you rise with Christ, the resurrection. What's communion picture? The death of Jesus. Why would they celebrate his death? Because he rose, because he's not dead. He's overcome it. And he paid the ultimate price in his death. He's overcome sin, death, and Satan himself. He's overcome it. And all these new worship practices took place. And secular historians will all back that up as well, too. The resurrection caused shockwaves historically, real events, real time and space that anybody can look back on and look at it. And if he did not rise, please give me an explanation about what happened. Please. Be forever grateful if you can answer that big mystery then. How do you explain it? In your uh, outline, it just says this. No other name. One question. And the question's this. Who do you say Jesus is? Philip Schaff, after a lifetime of researching the impact of Jesus, he wrote, This Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since. And he produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. This is Jesus. He's changed lives. Millions of lives have been changed throughout history. Millions of them. I could tell you my story. He's changed my life. I've met him. I could tell you the day my father came to know Christ and what happened to him before Christ and after Christ. It was remarkable. I saw my grandfather come to Christ on his deathbed. That was amazing. I saw my grandmother come to Christ. I have seen, I, 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 was, I was so blown away, I decided to give my life and go into ministry. That's what I was going to do. I want to invest my life in that. I could stand here and tell countless stories of the impact of Jesus when there is an authentic person who truly bows their knee to Jesus and how radical he can transform something. I could tell you stories, amazing miracles of answered prayer. It's amazing. There's no other explanation for it except something is real and happening. He's real. He's affecting lives. And so what it does for a believer, it should increase our confidence. And if you're someone who doesn't believe, now you've got a big problem. You've got all this evidence. And what it's doing, it's answering some historical realities. These things happen. So the question is not, is it true, but what do I do with it? And it comes down to a heart issue. 
where once you put all these intellectual thoughts and ideas and helping get understanding, now you just face him. And it's you. And it's Jesus. And I'm telling you, when you look there, there are, like a lot of people have these crazy conceptions on who God is. And while he's immense and powerful, he's a great, powerful God, he's the most compassionate and caring person. If you truly, authentically look at Jesus, he will change your life. I can explain evidences for the faith. I cannot explain a God who would come and die and rise. I, I don't know how to explain that. That's where we run out of words. But that's where we, we have to bow our knee. And so I would just say, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say? And will you acknowledge that he is Messiah promised? Died, rose. And you have to understand something. He created you. He died for you. And will you acknowledge that and bow your life to him? So let's pray. As your head is bowed, I just want to, uh, there's a great thinker, amazing man. His name was C.S. Lewis. He wrestled with these facts as he thought about the resurrection, the truths of who Jesus was. He said he became the most reluctant convert in all of England. But he could not get past the reality. And this is where he bowed his knee and he turned to the Lord. Now, for you, if you've never done that, listen, you're, you're gonna, you'll experience what millions have experienced before. That you're acknowledging your king. That he's real. So I'm just going to lead you in a very simple prayer that's been prayed for generations as people acknowledge him. And I'm going to ask that you would pray this prayer. And you're going to bow your knee to the king. Just acknowledge it. And we just pray along with you, all of us as believers. You just say, King Jesus, I acknowledge you. I acknowledge that you're, you're the promised one. All the indicators, fulfilled prophecy pointed to you, hundred, over a hundred of them. I know that's not a coincidence. There's no explanation. There's no explanation that history was literally turned upside down. Even Rome got turned upside down. A polytheistic place became a Christian nation because you rose. Can't deny it. So I just acknowledge today, I don't deny it any longer. Um, acknowledge your fear for turning to him. So I just acknowledge that and just say, forgive me. Because I have to acknowledge that your death on the cross was because of my sin as well. And I confess it. And I turn from it. I do turn from it and I need help. I want to be part of the fellowship of the resurrection. I want that. I ask for the resurrection power you promise in my life now. I ask for the privilege of being part of the resurrection for eternity. I ask for that. And I have nothing to offer. And I don't want to insult you to try to offer anything. Not my good behavior or anything. I know nothing compares. I can't offer it. So I offer my life. And I ask your forgiveness. I accept you, Jesus, as king in my life. I accept it. Just want to pray for the rest of us. I just pray, Lord, for all of us that our conviction would be just like Peter, just like John, that we could unblinking just give a, a great hope for why we believe in you. 
that you'd use our mouth to proclaim your wonders. So would you deepen conviction here today, Lord? Use the people in this room uh, to carry on the legacy of generations of followers. And may your message be proclaimed with amazing power, marked with humility and gentleness as well. I just pray for that, Lord, and we ask it in your name. Isn't that good to declare that? It's very powerful. Um, Remember that friend of mine I told you about? He had a ride on the resurrection, wrote that paper. Um, She literally gave him an A+. Do you believe that? Um, I don't know what ever happened to her. Don't know that she ever bowed her knee, but she could not refute it. She couldn't refute it. Um, If you're still wrestling with this whole idea of Jesus and who he was, I just want to encourage you. Don't even take what I have to say. Just go research it yourself. But don't stand on the wrong side of history. Just don't be there. There's no other Messiah that's coming. He's come. Um, he is, you're, you're standing in the day of salvation. Um, the privilege we have is we get to experience the fullness of that more and more as we live our lives for him. And so I'm just going to speak a blessing over us all. And before I do it, I just want to read this from Acts 24. And it says this, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law, that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So please continue to bow your knee, keep your conscience clear. And so may you experience the power of the resurrection as you surrender your life to the king. May the fullness and magnitude of knowing Jesus overwhelm you. May hope rise up. May hope rise up as you dwell on Jesus. May you experience his grace, his power, and his joy as you uh, continue to surrender your life in him and may conviction rise um, as humility rises as well. God bless you until next week. Mike will be back, and we'll have a topic of persecution. It'll be a great one. Don't miss it. We'll see you next week.